So right away this morning, church, I actually want us to start by hearing a verse from the New Testament, which references our passage you just heard read in Isaiah 6. And this is a fascinating verse from the New Testament. It's actually from the Gospel of John, which we as a church have been diving into a bit for a few weeks now. But again, I just want us to hear this as we begin, because for us as Christians, this sets the stage for what's truly going on here in Isaiah 6. And so as we begin, hear this from John chapter 12. And quickly, as for the context of John 12, so the writer John in the New Testament is narrating about Jesus and, and Jesus' teachings. And then John quotes from some verses from Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6, which then finally and amazingly leads the Apostle John, inspired by God in the New Testament, to write this. This is John 12, verse 41. Quote, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now, if that's confusing, let me read that again. The New Testament says, Isaiah said these things, things in context which are clearly about Jesus, because he, Isaiah, saw Jesus' glory and spoke of Jesus. Now, if you're tracking, that means very clearly from the Apostle John, who knew his Old Testament well and walked with Jesus and knew this passage well from Isaiah 6 that we're covering this morning, he, inspired by God, said that Isaiah didn't ultimately just see the glory of God in general here in Isaiah 6, but Isaiah saw Jesus' glory in Isaiah 6. In other words, just to be super clear, the passage you just heard read and that we are covering this morning about this mighty, majestic king who is holy, holy, holy is Jesus. It is the same Jesus who came 2,000 years ago and lived and taught and died and rose. And I, and I want us to know that right away as we begin this morning because that, that connects to why this passage is so helpful for us in this series that we're doing, understanding the gospel that we're continuing together. Because, because on the one hand, most basically understood, this passage in Isaiah 6, as we're going to see, is, is obviously helpful because it's so clear about God's holiness and, and our sin and the forgiveness God's, God offers in the gospel. And so that's true. But then also, again, it's the Bible itself in the New Testament that tells us to go even deeper. And that's to see that, yes, this is a passage about God's holy glory and forgiveness. But also, this God is the same Jesus who came here for us and lived and did miracles and taught and then died that brutal death on the cross and rose. And specifically, that's, that's helpful, I think, for us to think about because consider this, even as Christians, we sometimes can subtly mistakenly view the gospel as, well, God in general, right? He's holy and fearful, but man, good thing that Jesus is our loving Savior. And in thinking that, what we subtly do is we pit God in general against Jesus, or especially God in the Old Testament in some ways against Jesus. But again, the truth is, church, the same God of holy glory is the God Jesus who came in such love for us. I say one last time, the God we're about to spend time reading about in Isaiah 6 is the same Jesus we often read about in the New Testament. And so as we go throughout this this morning, I just encourage you, keep that in mind. This is Jesus. Because if you do so, it will lead you to be more amazed at Jesus' power and holiness, but also at Jesus' gospel and love as well. But all that said, so that's really who we're seeing here in Isaiah 6. But that now brings us to dive into what we'll see here. And so as you heard, we're in Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8 this morning. As for outline, 
for how we will go through this passage. As usual, we're going to go verse by verse. And as we'll do so, we're going to have three main sections together with an important conclusion. Three main sections plus a conclusion. And so that's what we're going to see in those sections. First, we're going to be in verses 1 through 6 here of Isaiah 6, or 1 through 4. And there we're going to see what Isaiah saw about God and what it shows us about God. Meaning, remember, about Jesus. Which then in our second section will lead us to just verse 5. And there we'll see what Isaiah's response was to what he saw about God. And we'll see what that shows us about ourselves. Which then third and finally will lead us to just verses 6 and 7 where we'll see the gospel of what God did to Isaiah. And so those will be our three main sections. God, Isaiah, and us, and the gospel. But that'll then at our very end lead us to conclude with just verse 8 where we get to quickly see Isaiah's response to what happened to him in the gospel, which applies to our response as well. And so that's where we're going, church, if that's helpful to you. In summary, three main sections about God, about us and Isaiah, about the gospel, and then finally a conclusion about Isaiah and our response to the gospel. But all that said, church, let's dive in here and begin the first section. The first section. Here again, verses 1 through 4, focusing on what Isaiah saw and what it shows us about God, meaning remember about Jesus. And for this, we're just going to go verse by verse taking in this scene. And as a quick side note on this, I do know that for many of us in here, we might be familiar with this passage. But if that's the case, let me just say, I do encourage you, just try to hear this afresh, because this truly is an incredible passage in God's word. And so we'll start in just verse 1. So everyone look down your Bibles, Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So a few quick things on that opening verse. First, just notice how, begin, how Isaiah begins here by giving us the, the situation of when this vision happened. The situation, quote, in the year that King Uzziah died. And we know from historical records that that was right around 740 BC. But not only that, but importantly on King Uzziah, he was actually one of those small number of kings in the Old Testament who we're told did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And he reigned a whopping 52 years. And on him, now it's true, if you know your Old Testaments really, really well, that at the end of Uzziah's life, he kind of started struggling and, and sinned in some ways. But overall, King Uzziah was known as a good king who reigned for 52 years. And that said, that actually does matter here because think about it. What Isaiah then is doing here by referencing King Uzziah's death is that he isn't, he isn't just giving us the year that this vision happened, but even more so, he's saying in the very year that King Uzziah died, the king of 52 years, I saw the Lord, the true king. <laughs> Meaning at that time, yes, our earthly king is dead, but actually, the true ultimate king is alive and well. <laughs> and so that's the situation here, which then second on this verse here, leads us to consider the first thing that Isaiah says he sees about this king and the Lord. And that's how he quotes, saw the Lord upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And that first obviously shows us that this Lord is king, right? And he's exalted and lifted up. And then though, concerning his robe, that filling the temple is supposed to sound extreme because it is. Because in this vision then, Isaiah is in the temple, which was already pretty big, and Isaiah is first seeing this king high and lifted up, and then he's seeing the temple floor literally full of this king's robe, which is supposed to just represent his kingly majesty, right? His kingly greatness. 
Which then third and quickly finally here in verse one, and, and this is most simple word-wise, but it's probably the most profound in reality, is that let's be so clear, Isaiah straightforwardly says, quote, I saw the Lord. <laughs> I saw the Lord, you see that? Meaning Isaiah says he saw the Lord God. And I bring that up because let's just be really clear. That's not a normal thing in the Bible to see the Lord so clearly like this in all his glory, but Isaiah does. And as we'll see, God is the one letting this happen for a reason. And so, so that's just verse one, which moving on now leads us to consider what Isaiah sees next. So now look down at verse two. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. So now here, this whole verse is basically about those seraphim. And honestly, this passage is the only time in the whole Bible where I want you to know this word is used. And we're assuming these are angels who are being called this. And as for who or, or what they are, all we know is that this word in the original Hebrew actually means burning ones. And so these might have been bright or even burning like fire. And we know they have six wings, right? Six wings, two of which make them fly somehow, two of which cover their faces, probably represent that they can't look directly at the Holy Lord. And then finally, two which cover their feet, probably representing that they can't stand in the Holy God's presence. And so we see all of that. But church, besides all that, as for more on these seraphim, truthfully, we can't say much. And, and to be honest, almost as a quick application for every one of us in this room, on examples like this, this the truth is there's many topics, right, that we might be really interested in, like angels or some other topics, but the truth is we often have to be low enough before God's word to admit when God hasn't told us much, <laughs> right? When God hasn't told us much. Because on a lot of things, he could have told us a lot more, but he didn't. And I bring this up because what often happens and let's just be truthful, especially this happens a lot now on places like, like YouTube. <laughs> what often happens is people try so hard to overinterpret Bible texts. They try so hard to connect things in ways that they were never meant to be connected, all because they really want to know more. But instead of doing that, brothers and sisters, sometimes we just need to submit to what God has told us and what God has decided not to tell us. But anyway, so, so that's... What's, that's all we know about the seraphim, but here we do know that they're burning ones who are situated above the Lord. They have six wings, all basically to display how holy God is, which leads next in verse three to the famous thing that they said. So continuing on, now look at verse three. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So, so to begin on that, notice these seraphim, it's really weird, are calling to one another here. That's interesting in itself. And that even perhaps does connect to us. Because in a similar way, I do hope we all know, Jesus' apostles in the New Testament, when they talk about us worshiping as a church, they say we're to be, quote, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody. That's a command in Ephesians 5.19. Meaning in our worship, we're commanded actually to sing and sing not just to God, but actually sing to one another as God's people. And so that's an interesting connection here with the seraphim. But even more uh, than that, on these two famous lines, we could spend a whole lot of time dissecting these words. But in basic, on these lines of poetry, notice what this is, is the seraphim here are first saying something that's true about God himself. 
And then second, in the second line, they're talking about how what's true about God relates to his creation. You can see that. First line is technically just about God himself. The second line is about how that relates to God's creation. And we say that because in short, so what is it that they say about God himself? Well, as we all know, they call out that God is holy, holy, holy. And holy there is repeated three times because that's what they did to emphasize something back then. The point is God is really, really holy. But what does that even mean? Well, in short, God's holiness is that he's set apart since that's just what the word means. But still, we may wonder, but what does that even mean? And well, if you've been at ECC for any amount of time, you maybe have heard us talk about this before, but, but very importantly, church, God's holiness, like we see here, is not only his purity, his sinlessness, although that is clearly a big part of it, but instead, rather than just purity, just think about it, what, sense, what sets God apart? What makes him so different and better than small and sinful creatures like that, like us? And the answer to that is yes, of course. One of the big things is he is sinless. He is pure. That's absolutely true. But also, when we consider it, it's that God and God alone is, is perfectly able to do whatever he wants. He's all powerful. And God is also totally loving as well. And I, I think those things are the best way to think about God's holiness. Which is why, by the way, in the song, Holy, 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 that we just sang about 15 minutes earlier, the writer who wrote that theologically thought hard and knew this as well, which is why we sing that God is perfect in power and in love and in purity. Because if you consider it, those three things are maybe the best way to start to explain how God is so different and set apart compared to us. But anyway, so that's the first line, God is holy, which then quickly about the second line and then leads to how that impacts God's world because you can see it. So God is holy, but the earth is full of his glory. And in short, as for what glory is, it is God's holiness. It's who God is in himself, now made recognizable and seen by others. And you can actually tell that's what's going on here. And in fact, this combination of these two lines right here in Isaiah 6 might be one of the best places in the Bible where you can see the difference between these two closely similar words of holiness and glory. Because again, in summary, holiness is who our God is in himself. As he's so much different and better than us. But then God's glory is basically him showing that and that being seen in his world. That's really the difference. God is holy and God reveals his glory. In brief, that's what these seraphim are calling out to one another about. That's what they're praising God for. And for you and me, that's what we should praise God for as well. Which then quickly and finally in this section, this is a lot, leads to verse 4. So look there now. The last verse of this first section, verse 4. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. So this is verse is almost a transition verse. Because now we have him who called. So God is calling either to Isaiah or the seraphim. But also, even more so, something starts to happen here. Right? You see that something starts to happen. The foundations shake. The, the, the place is filling with smoke. And shaking and smoke in the Old Testament almost always are usually referred to God's coming. His presence. And so all that said, I know that was a lot. But that's our first section, right? About what Isaiah saw and about who our God is. And quickly, church, all of that does apply to you and me and to the gospel because let's just take a second and realize this is our God, right? This is our God. Our God truly is the king like this. Jesus is the one and only majestic king like this. And for you and me, we need to not only just say that about God, but we need to take a second and really 
believe that. Know that that's true. And this may be harder for you and I here this morning to do than we usually think. Because think about it. I know and we all know that for us in the 21st century, let's be honest, we are basically different from almost any other time in world history in that we can hear this sort of language about there being a king and a lord and there being a, a train of his robe and it filling the temple and more things like that. And since you and I really don't have kings anymore or robes like we see here with our leaders and we don't even have physical temples anymore in our Christian religion, because of all of that, we can kind of start to put all of this king talk in the realm of just unreality. Or we can think it's just traditional and religious sounding. Or we can think that this is all just an old school form of government. And therefore, sure, it might be nice sounding, but it's mainly symbolic. And it doesn't really apply anymore. But on all that, brothers and sisters, it is true that in many ways our world and our nations have moved on from the monarchies and this sort of ruling, which is a good thing. But also in reality, brothers and sisters, there is one ultimate ruler of the universe. <laughs> And he is king, not president. He's king because he's holy, because he's so different and better than any of us and that he's perfect in power and love and purity. And therefore, he doesn't need any checks and balances on his rule. And again, the point is, that's really who our God is right now. God is king. Jesus is king. And as the king he is, he's more majestic and perfect and powerful and loving than we can fathom. And that's what Isaiah saw to begin here. So that's verses 1 through 4 in our first section. Which now leads us, though, to continue on and see what happens in our second section. For this, again, now we'll just be in verse 5. And we'll see what Isaiah's response was to this vision of God. And we're going to see how this shows us something about ourselves. And for this, we'll begin by just reading our only verse here, verse 5, and then we'll talk about it. So verses 1 through 4, Isaiah saw that about God, which then leads to this for him in verse 5. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So to break down what just happened there with Isaiah, let's just simply ask two questions, two questions. First, what does Isaiah feel about himself and others? And second, and why? Does he feel the way he does? So what he feels about himself and others and why? And so first, why, or what does Isaiah feel here about himself and others? Well, to begin on that, you can see it. Notice Isaiah in verse 5 here starts off by four times talking about himself. <laughs> four times talking about himself. He says, me, I, I, and I, all before he ever talks about anyone else. <laughs> And that in itself, church, is significant because in the presence of God's holiness and in realizing his own brokenness and sin and not holiness, Isaiah, for the majority of this verse, focuses on himself. And remember, he's a faithful prophet in the Old Testament and yet still confronted with how perfect and power and love and purity God is, he mainly realizes how he personally is so different than him. And so that's what Isaiah does to begin. And brothers and sisters, for us, that in itself is significant because that should be our posture in response as well. Seeing our sins so much more first and mainly and then maybe seeing in others. So you can see that Isaiah focuses on himself, but then what does he say about himself? Well, he starts with, woe is me, which is a strong word and it basically is the opposite of blessing. It's a, it's a curse in the traditional sense. And so Isaiah basically starts off with this idea of, man, I'm in deep trouble. And then, I'm, and then he adds that second, for I am lost. 
Or as other translations say, I am undone. And I looked up that word this week, and interestingly, it only occurs a, a few times in Isaiah, twice in all of Isaiah, 16 times in the whole Old Testament, which is not a lot. And it means something like lost or undone or even destroyed or unloosed, meaning the idea is I'm like totally falling apart here, hence undone. And then third and finally, concerning just himself, then Isaiah adds, interestingly, he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. He focuses mainly on his lips. And that'll be significant later in this vision as well, so remember that. But for now, as for why he goes and mentions his, his lips, his polluted lips, we don't know the exact reason, but we can speculate that maybe it's because since Isaiah was a prophet, you can think about it, and he uses lips often to talk about God. That was drawn to his attention. Or maybe he references his lips because he knows that it's with our lips that we're all meant to praise God. Or perhaps the point could be that in realizing his sin and he's thinking about himself, he doesn't even get to the point of thinking that he acts and thinks sinfully. Instead, he only just stops at the fact that he speaks sinfully. All of those things are possible. Either way, what we do know is that Isaiah feels he's cursed because he's undone, because he's got polluted lips, which then, after all that, finally does lead him to consider, quote, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And again, just notice that comes after everything about himself. He sees his own woe, his own lostness, his uncleanness, and then he realizes, and I'm in the midst of people who are like this as well. And so all that said, that's the answer to our first question of what does he feel about himself and others, but now that leads us importantly to follow that up and ask, but why? Second question, but why? And we specifically ask this because Isaiah in verse five gives us a reason for why he feels he does. And this is really interesting because just take a second to think about it. Imagine that you and I could enter into the story and just right there ask Isaiah, why do you feel this way? Why do you feel this way? Because if we ask that, we'd probably assume Isaiah would say something like, well, because I saw more about myself, or I feel this way because I see more about myself and other sins. And those, of course, would be good and fine answers, but in what I, Isaiah actually says, there's a more ultimate reason why. And what is it? Well, notice all of verse 5 again. As you hear this, just pay attention now to the ending. And I said, woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so Isaiah feels this way about his sin, for because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And that may be surprising to us, but think about it. And this is so helpful for us even concerning the gospel church. Because consider, so according to God's word here, why really does Isaiah ultimately feel deep conviction of his sin? And for you and me, why do we ever feel deep conviction of our sin in the gospel? Well, concerning Isaiah and us, yes, we do feel that conviction when we sometimes look a lot at ourselves and notice our sin to some degree. But church, the truth is, that's not ultimately why. Instead, if, if that's the only reason we feel conviction, it's really to us focused. And so rather than that, the reason is that we can feel our sin so seriously is because when we're put up against the backdrop of who God is and how we don't measure up to him, that's when that conviction really comes. You get that? Or to say it another way, the issue with our sin isn't primarily that we just feel that we've done wrongs or that others do wrongs as well. Instead, as we see here, the main issue is, and we know that's such a big deal 
because we were designed for something greater. We were designed to show forth and imitate God and be like God. And so when we're given a glimpse of that, of God, of who he is, of how power and love were always meant to be used, what goodness and purity actually is, once we see that, it's then and mainly then that we feel this conviction of our sin. And that's exactly what happened here to Isaiah. And so all that said, that's our second section and just verse 5 this morning. And quickly, for you and me now and all that, really that section applies to you and me, mainly because as we've been saying throughout this whole series together, church, we do need to deeply believe the reality of our sin first before we will ever really appreciate the gospel. Before we'll ever truly want the salvation that Jesus offers. Because if we don't actually understand the situation we're in due, due to our sin, if we don't rightly understand that situation, then we will never deeply appreciate the gospel. We won't. But on that, church, it is important to note that we do need to rightly understand the situation we're in due to our sin. Rightly understand the situation we're in. And now I say that because actually, and stick with me, this is interesting, actually there's two different sides that we can be in where it leads us to not rightly understand the situation we're in sin. Meaning there's, there's two totally different sides we can fall into which might lead us to not truly embrace the gospel. And one of those sides might be implied here in verse 5. And now as for what I mean, so think about it. First, and most obviously, we might not rightly understand the situation we're in due to our sin by reading Bible passages like this about God's holiness and our sin and kind of just thinking it's all bogus. Right? Meaning on our own, we can convince ourselves that no, I'm, I'm not that sinful like that. I'm fine on my own. And, and, and really, that's probably, if you think about it, that's probably the most common response from people today. And that's almost certainly the number one thing that keeps people from ever genuinely trusting in Jesus. It's not that people don't believe God exists, since almost everyone in our culture believes God exists, since only like 10% of Americans are agnostic or atheist. And so instead of that, people really don't truly trust and rely on the good news of Jesus, mainly because they feel like they don't really need it. It's often that simple. And so that's one way, the one side, to not rightly understand the situation we're due in due to our sin. But then, on the other side, and this is interesting, this is the one that might be implied here in verse 5. On the other side, we also, church, may not rightly understand the situation we're in due to our sin by going, into, going too far into hopelessness as well going too far into hopelessness. And again, this might be here in verse 5, because consider this. So Isaiah, in a sense, is rightly convicted of his sin here, as he is a sinner. And in fact, he's even more of a sinner than he realizes, because he's only focusing on his lips. All right, so, so that's true. And yet, he may not be totally rightly understanding the situation he's actually in due to his sin. If that sounds weird, just stick with me. Because again, Isaiah's right to feel his sin here. He's right to sense on his own. He deserves God's curse and punishment. That's all true. But then on the other hand, one could argue, and I do see this point, that Isaiah here, in some of the strong and almost it's all over type of language that he uses, especially in that word lost or undone or destroyed, it could be that Isaiah here doesn't give enough credence to God's mercy and grace. Or as one Bible-believing commentator I read this week put it, quote, Isaiah sees his situation as being so hopeless that he does not even bother to ask for cleansing or deliverance. But here, he underestimates the grace of God. End quote. You see that? 
And now again, that is not to say that Isaiah shouldn't see his sins so much. He should, just like we should. And yet, the truth is, Isaiah is not totally undone like he may think he is. And for you and me, the point on this is, and if we ever get to the place in this life where we think that our sin is so bad, or that a certain sin is so bad that we are definitely, ultimately hopeless, then we need to know that is not the case. Because instead, the same holy God, he's also the one who, who's able to do something about our sin. He's also more gracious than we might expect. Or to say it in one more way, in this same holy God's presence, there is more mercy and love than you and I sometimes give him credit for. And that is what we're about to see in our third section. So that was, verse, that was sections one and two about God's holiness and about us and Isaiah and our sin. But that now finally does lead us to our third and, main sec- third and last main section. Here in verses six and seven, we're going to see the gospel of what happened to Isaiah. And so for this, let's now just read these two verses together. And so look down at your Bibles. After all of that, finally comes verses six and seven. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a, a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. <laughs> so on these verses, let's realize this, this really happened in this vision. Again, it so clearly symbolizes the gospel because, because to break down what happens here, so, so one of these seraphim who, re, who remember has been praising God's holiness. The seraphim goes to the altar which is the place where sacrifices will usually be made. And the seraphim takes a burning coal. And what does he do? Well, he touches Isaiah's mouth and lips with it. See that? And think about it. The reason he touches Isaiah's mouth and lips is because now, remember, Isaiah specifically has so deeply realized the sin of those very lips. And so think of the imagery. Isaiah is a man of unclean lips, which is true. But it's those very lips which are then touched by the fire from the sacrificial altar. And, and why ultimately, though, does that happen? Well, the angel just straight up tells Isaiah, and he tells us, quote, Behold, an emphatic word, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And that's really the point of all of this church. And really those two words, guilt and atone, show us so much about the gospel. They show us New Testament and Old Testament, the good news of who God is towards sinners like us. Because first, just consider that word guilt, guilt. And, and we need to think about this one perhaps a little more because consider what do we usually think of when we hear the word guilt, especially now in English. Well, probably for most of us in here, we first hear the word guilt, and we probably immediately think of subjective internal guilt feelings. See that? Guilt feelings. And to be clear, guilt feelings, feeling guilty is a real thing. But what we all need to know is that concerning the gospel and concerning the original meaning of the word guilt in this language and in English, it actually isn't mainly a feeling word. Right? In fact, instead, it's actually an external courtroom word, meaning it's a right versus wrong word, all because we can actually be guilty of things. We can be in the wrong. And then if we are in the wrong, we might have subjective feelings of guilt that go along with it, 
or we might not. Or on the flip side, there may be some things that we actually aren't guilty of, but our feelings are off on and we feel guilty of. So subjective guilt feelings may be correct or not, but either way, what guilt primarily is, what the gospel primarily deals with, is our true moral guilt, as one of my favorite pastors, Francis Schaeffer, used to say, our true moral guilt, meaning our being guilty, <laughs> which, if you're tracking, means that the gospel and Jesus on the cross, he, he does help us with guilt feelings, especially in time, but mainly the good news, church, is that our actual guilt, our guiltiness in the courtroom of God's justice, the good news is that that's totally, objectively been forgiven and taken away. And so we see that first. That's what Isaiah is told here from the angels. And again, that happens to us in the gospel. And so that's guilt. But then quickly, moving on to the next word, we, we should ask, but how can that true moral guilt and guiltiness really be forgiven like that? And the answer to that now brings us to that second important word, and that's how Isaiah's sin is atoned for. Atoned for. And briefly, as you probably know, that also points us to the cross, right? The cross. Because the point is, our guilt is gone. But how? Well, all because God de did what needed to be done to actually remove that guilty sentence from us. Injustice, in reality. That's what Jesus does for us on the cross. He took Isaiah's sins and he takes our sins if we trust in him. Or, or finally, to really bring this all full circle and to say all that remembering and knowing that this is Jesus in Isaiah 6. It is amazing to think, church, that Isaiah saw the Lord God King high and lifted up and, and Isaiah heard the seraphim announcing how holy, holy, holy God is and, and then Isaiah felt his sin and then Isaiah had this atonement symbolized with this burning coal taken from the altar touching his lips. And all the while, we now know that was all happening literally in the presence of Jesus. <laughs> literally in the presence of Jesus. Meaning, think of it. The New Testament tells us this is Jesus. And so in this vision, ultimately, all this is happening to Isaiah, yes. And Jesus is there having it all happen. He's watching it all happen. And all the while, Jesus knows that he's the one who's going to do what's needed to be done in history so that this vision of forgiveness will become a reality of forgiveness for Isaiah and for you and me. And so that's our passage, church. And really, now I, I kind of hope you see for yourself that this in Isaiah 6 is such a great outline of the gospel because it starts with God being who he is and then, and then we realize how broken we are in comparison to him. But then the good news, the gospel, is that the same God of holiness does what's need to be done to forgive us and bring us back to himself. Jesus, King Jesus, does what's needed to be done to bring us back all by his grace alone. Finally, on this passage, as we said earlier in our outline, leads us this morning to just conclude, though, with verse 8, with verse 8. And here now we're just going to briefly see Isaiah's response to all that happening to him, and it uh, connects to our response as well. And so many of us will know this verse, but now look at it, especially after everything that just happened. Finally, this morning, Isaiah 6, verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. So, so quickly on that verse, for Isaiah and for us who have received the gospel of Jesus, just notice two things here that stand out, two things. Number one, just, just notice how God, after accomplishing the gospel, right away has a purpose for Isaiah, a purpose. 
And that's, that's gospel 101 as well. And it is to be encouraging to you and me in here because God doesn't just save us as individuals just to be forgiven or, or just so that one day after this life we go be with him. Those things are true, but also God saves us and loves us and has a purpose for us. And again, that is, that is what we see clearly in verse 8 here. And for, and for me and you, we know that applies because in the New Testament, like in places like Ephesians 2, which we covered about three weeks ago, it, remember, says this, quote, For by grace you have been saved through faith, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so we are saved and forgiven by God's grace alone. And church, part of being saved by this God is that we are each his workmanship, his masterpieces, his, his new creations that, that he creates because he has a purpose for you and I to walk in. And now to be really clear, your and my purpose from God does not come to us by direct unique revelation like Isaiah's did here. I just want you to know that that's kind of what made Isaiah a prophet. But also let's be clear, we do each have a purpose we see that purpose outlined in God's word and that purpose now is to uniquely go forth as who you are into God's word, love Jesus, love others and live in light of this great gospel. All right, so that's the first thing we see clearly here in verse eight, which then and finally for this morning leads us to the second. And that's how number two, finally on this verse in response. And we don't talk about this as much usually about this verse, but just generally just notice how different Isaiah is here from who he was in verse five. You see that how different he is. And on that, yes, a big part of how different he is is that he is now willing to go and do whatever God says with that here am I, send me. And so, amen, we, we should each imitate Isaiah's willingness to follow the Lord, especially to follow the Lord and spreading God's gospel. But also, just contrast that sort of talking from Isaiah to how he talked in verse 5. <laughs> because remember, in verse 5, Isaiah was in this crazy deep, dark conviction of sin because he saw God which made him realize how messed up he was in the depth of his sin. Woe is me, I'm undone, I'm unclean. I'm with other people who are unclean. But then the gospel happens in just two verses and then boom, all of a sudden Isaiah's talking like a different person. <laughs> he, he's willing to follow God, yes, but even more generally, he's, he's, he's able here to speak to and talk to this God more freely in his presence. And that's not because, let's be clear, it's not because Isaiah all of a sudden is now no longer a sinner. But instead, it's because Isaiah now knows he's on God's side and God's on his side. <laughs> and finally, church, so it is for you and me. And that's really the gospel. And that's how the gospel changes us. Because one last time, the truth is, let's be so clear, the living God, he is the king right now of this universe. And he is holy, meaning he is perfect in his power, his love, his sinlessness. And we are so sinful in comparison to him. But then also this same God, and his name is Jesus, he really came out of love for such sinners. He truly accomplished that gospel in history. We receive it by faith alone. And then finally, church, once we do, we are totally forgiven. God has a purpose for us. He continues to love us and it's all because we are in a truly restored relationship with him. That's, that's the good news, brothers and sisters. That's the gospel and it's all because of King Jesus who is this God of love and grace. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.